Hello and welcome to the Auditorium, our very first podcast. And this is going to be hosted by myself, Dr. Bramwell, and my thirsty co-host, Mr. Mountfield. What are you, what are you drinking? I'm oh, just having a little cocktail, Dave, that's all right. Just a little, little, little thing I prepared earlier. Uh, yes, sorry, I'm, I'm Mr. Mountfield. I am, uh, if you like, the idiot savant to Dave's authority. I will be helping you through the strange world of the auditorium. But, but, but Dave, explain a bit more. What, 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 the, what the hell is an auditorium? That's a, it's, a good, it's a good question. Uh, I think it's the name of an album by the Dandy Warhols. But let's right. not go there. Yeah. Um, it is, what is the, it's a portal into um, the world of people's eccentric passions. Yes. I guess is a good way of, of describing it. And it's, the, the auditorium has also been something which we've uh, taken around various festivals in the UK for, for many years and invited guest speakers to come and share their subject matter and their passions with live audiences. It also kind of came from a night that I've been running for over 10 years in Brighton now called the Catalyst Club where people um, come and talk about their uh, about their passions on stage, so you can kind of get the idea here. It's about passion, um, and perhaps something with a little bit uh, bit of a quirky. I was going to say tend, to it, it. they tend towards the esoteric and the arcane, and sometimes a downright occult, don't they? But they're, it's certainly they're certainly not mainstream passions, are they? They're they're, they're they're ones where you go, oh, look at that, someone's interested in that. <laughs> well, that's it. I mean, the, the Catalyst Club has been running for, for, for such a long time that when, when I first set it up, I imagined that speakers would come and they'd say, I'd like to talk about my favourite Bruce Springsteen album, and mm. someone else would want to come and, you know, talk about their collection of Conkers. Yeah. And that just hasn't happened. It, when, whenever people approach with uh, with new, new subjects, I'm always just surprised at how weird and off the wall their choices are. But then, then again, we do live in Brighton, yeah. so so and there you do is. You have some very odd friends. There is. Yeah. <laughs> it's impossible not to in this town. Yeah. So we. Do, I think it's probably time we got on to our to our first speaker. Yes. And there, there's a reason why we've chosen Rob Brandt to to kick off our podcast because Rob was the very first speaker at the very first Catalyst Night back in 2004, and he chose the history of the Martini as his subject matter. And what I like about Rob is that he sort of exemplifies for me what what the Catalyst is about is in that. He's not a professional drinker or mixologist. Uh, well, he might be a professional drinker. He's an enthusiastic drunk. Yeah. Um, and uh, so Rob is an illustrator by trade, but in, in sort of true Catalyst uh, style, he came and spoke about one of his sort of, you know, not a private passion, but one of his one of his interests, the martini. And so, for, you know, for ignoramuses like, like myself and probably like you as well, you, you probably thought that um, the martini was invented by someone called Martin, which Rob, you know, Rob, Rob puts us right um, on many counts. Martin, yes. A very small Martin, <laughs> So Rob is going to be speaking for 15 minutes on the history of the martini. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me back. I did write this 10 years ago, and uh, um, it's interesting to go back and, and, and look at myself 10 years younger, uh, and some of it's okay. And some of it, it's a bit embarrassing. But here it is. <laughs> the martini, I said, is the drink of the villain, the war hero, the heiress and the prostitute, the femme fatale and the executive, both naive and shrewd. It's a drink of alcoholics and sophisticates, politicians and artists. It's a classic, and yet no two people can agree on exactly how one should be made. Legends attach themselves to it, and it collects them like trophies, only to throw them off and move on and make new friends. That's how it survives. It's an icon and an enigma. A martini consists of two principal ingredients, gin and vermouth. They are chilled 
and with ice, and then flavored with lemon peel, an olive, or a cocktail onion. And it sounds pretty simple, which is why I've had to pat this talk out with lots of politics and history and other spurious junk. So, to begin at the beginning, Hippocrates. Hippocrates in 500 BC was the first to write of an infusion of herbs in wine, which is essentially vermouth. He used it for medicinal purposes, a function it still performs today in the martini, uh, and it survived and grew more complex through the plague, the Renaissance, and countless wars to spread through and across Europe, each region developing its own style. Nonny Pratt, the Martoni man's vermouth, was created in 1812 in northern France, and in 1857, it was in America, just in time to catch the burgeoning trade in mixed drinks and to become the staple ingredient in the most important of them all, the martini. Gin's origins are a little bit later. In the 14th century, again, it was used as a medicine, making the martini one of the healthiest drinks you can buy, and is in fact just a plain spirit distilled from grain and flavored principally with juniper. The Dutch were the first to take it up and refine it, and, the, uh, and it was in Flanders that it first moved from the apothecary to the tavern. Bowles, a firm that still survives today, opened its first distillery in 1575, but gin was soon to leave home and grow up in another country. During the Thirty Years' War, the British mercenaries in Holland were introduced to a very useful habit of drinking gin before a battle, Dutch courage. And when they went home, they took it with them. Just soon afterwards, William of Orange was asked to become king, uh, and as soon as he got to England, he banned imports of brandy from France, giving gin pretty much a monopoly, and with an added advantage of having a, a royal monopoly, a royal patronage. It didn't hurt either that gin was cheap and easy to make. And in 18th century Industrial Revolution England, it became the drug of the miserable huddled masses in London and elsewhere, and naturally made things rather a lot worse. It took the country a long time to tackle the problem, but eventually legislation brought gin into the realm of professional distilleries, and the quality slowly began to rise. It took an even longer time for it to shake off its association with the misery and depravity of its origins, and in fact, Victorians would first put gin in decanters marked white wine. <laughs> but, it was, uh, but it was ready to begin another leg of its journey across the Atlantic and replace sweet gin from Holland, which the first Dutch settlers took with them, uh, and the stage was set for the making of the first martini. There were several myths surrounding the, the, the origin of the martini. Two of them involved gold miners. We've reached now the middle of the 19th century and the American gold rush. The first story belongs to one of the earliest noted bartenders, Professor Jerry Thomas, who also invented the Tom and Jerry and the Blue Blazer. Uh, Thomas sailed around the Horn in 1849 and set up a bar in the Occidental Hotel in Montgomery Street in San Francisco. A miner on his way to the town of Martinez stopped and asked for a drink, something special, he said, and dropped a gold nugget on the bar. Thomas, always inventive, thought quickly and placed a completely new drink in front of his customer. He called it the Martinez in order of the man's journey, honour. Unfortunately, Thomas didn't record this recipe in his seminal bartender's guide until the second edition in 1887, making this not the earliest recorded method. But when he did write it down, it went like this. A dash of bitters, two dashes of maraschino, two lumps of ice, and a pony of old Tom gin. Now, this is not yet a martini. It's sweet, it's complicated, and it's probably not very nice, but it's a start. The citizens of Martinez itself 
have another story. They claim the martini was invented when a miner tied up his horse outside a saloon owned by Julio Richelieu on Ferry Street. Richelieu was a young Frenchman, and he'd just travelled from New Orleans and had probably brought lots of new ideas and ingredients with him. The miner placed a tobacco sack of gold on the counter and put a, an empty bottle um, and asked it to be filled up with whiskey. The gold he put on the scales was rather more than was needed to fill the, the bottle. And so in Leo of change, coins, Richelieu made him a drink, and he called it the Martinez. The residents of the town are pretty adamant in their claim, and just to make sure no one argues with them, they have erected an ornamental tank trap as a warning to would-be usurpers. <laughs> there are various other stories that won't quite go away. The one invented by the manufacturer of uh, Martini Rossi, the vermouth brand, um, uh, whose product was not available in America at the time, at the time can't really be taken seriously because it wasn't there. Um, and th there's, another, uh, there's another legend that it was invented by the, uh, by the army um, and named after the Henry Martini rifle. Uh, at the time, officers drank gin rather than rum or brandy. And they're supposed to have named the drink after the rifle um, because they both had an almighty kick. Now, it's, it's really unlikely, unfortunately, that uh, that name would have spread across the Atlantic and been taken up by the Americans. But it's the only British claim to the name Martini, so we really have to keep it alive. Whatever the Martini's origins, and assuming that it did start as a drink called the Martinez, somewhere around the turn of the century, it lost its z, presumably because uh, it was too hard to pronounce after you'd had too many, uh, but circumstances demanded that you order another. I think it's fairly likely that several recipes and names combined into one, one as communication travel and travel became easier and faster. Changing tastes would also have been having an effect as people began to like things a little less sweet. Most published recipes now began to sound like this. Two-thirds of Plymouth gin, much drier than old Tom gin, one-third French vermouth and a dash of orange bitters. Orange bitters, incidentally, were still popular in martini recipes right up to the 1950s, and it's just started coming on sale again. By 1900, the beginning of the cocktail age, the martini was, a well, was well known on both sides of the Atlantic. The ingredients, having run away from their home in youthful exuberance, had returned, having found their fortune, mixed, stylized, and packaged, and branded as only the Americans could do at the time. During the Great War, Gin cocktails grew in popularity all over the world. In England, the cocktail hour, or cocktails before dinner, had become part of the evening ritual. The American bar at the Savoy there, uh, was the centre of London nightlife, as well as the bars in the Paris Ritz and Harris Bar in Venice, and they still all survive today. But back in 1920, January the 16th to be exact, 36 American states ratified the 18th Amendment and prohibition began. It quickly ruined many an old and respected establishment and restaurant that had been part of the establishment for many years. But no sooner had the paper been signed than speakeasies began to open and secret entrances and revolving doors just as they're depicted in film. Smuggling was tricky and unreliable, and as in London in the 18th century, people began to make their own spirits. And as I've said, gin is cheap and easy to make. Therefore, necessity being a much greater force than taste or conscience, gin 
became the most available and therefore the most popular drink of the times. The problem was that gin they made, the gin they made, was really dreadful, really, really bad. And so vermouth added to it uh, was necessary just to make it stay down. (laughs) And so the martini had chained itself to the railings of American culture. Prohibition, as we know, didn't work. Uh, In fact, it merely made people switch from a glass of wine in the evening to drinking several glasses of gin. And when it was repealed by Roosevelt in 1933, Americans actually began to drink a little less. (laughs) But the martini was here to stay. In the 1940s, the martini was still dominant. Gin was being imported from Britain, and American distilleries were improving their product. This meant that the martini could become drier. That's to say, you didn't need so much vermouth. So now the accepted proportions were four to one. The World War spread American culture even further afield and reinforced it where it had taken root already. Even Winston Churchill, who drank martinis, although we mustn't forget his mother was American and uh, she invented the the Manhattan, another great drink. Uh, He liked them dry. And it's said that he would pour gin into a pitcher with ice and merely glance briefly across the room at the vermouth. Back in the US, commentators of the day began to notice the obsession for really, really dry martinis and the effect it was having on the economy, which was rather detrimental. They worried that the country's businessmen, statesmen, and professionals were more interested in how to make a really, really dry martini than they were in doing their job. They were also drinking rather a lot at lunchtime, which were making the uh, afternoons something of a write-off. Products to help people in their quest for drier martinis began to appear on the market. A vermouth syringe, a martini pipette, and an atomizer for spraying the inside of the shaker. (laughs) Other industries also wanted to cash in, and soon there was a martini popsicle, and soon after that, a martini-flavored boiled sweet. But the martini had become a stuff of legend, and legends drank them. It made men, and it finished them. Jack London, who never actually mixed one in his life, would have a barman in San Francisco make up quantities and ship them to his writer's retreat. He was dead by 40. (laughs) Ernest Hemingway wrote about them with great affection and had an even greater affection for them in real life. He called his Montgomery's uh, after the, uh, the, the field marshal, who would not attack his enemies unless he outnumbered them 15 to 1. And that's how uh, Hemingway liked his martinis. Hemingway shot himself. Humphrey Bogart's last words were meant to have been, I should never have switched from whiskey to martinis. W.C. Fields had two when he got up in, morn- in the morning and then had another. And he carried a, a picture full of them wherever he went. You, the photographs of him getting out of cabs with a, with a picture of martinis. So, back to Roosevelt. These stories would not have been possible were it not for his feel, uh, repeal of prohibition. In fact, no one was happier than he to be able to mix a legal martini in the White House. His method may have been a little idiosyncratic. He used a teaspoon of brine. But he instituted the cocktail hour into the running of the government and legitimized it for the whole nation. It also became an intrinsic part of his diplomatic efforts, particularly with Stalin, who, despite complaining that they were cold on his stomach, bizarrely, he, plied, he was plied with them at every meeting. <laughs> Someone back in those times uh, called it the uh, four martinis and let's have an agreement era. <laughs> those were the days. <laughs> Stalin, incidentally, would always bring caviar to the party and regularly sent Roosevelt cases of vodka. 
Later, Harry Truman's Secretary of State, Dean Acheson, confided in his son, saying that he liked to drink something transparent after the murky transactions of statecraft. <laughs> the fact that the Martini was often at the center of power did not escape the notice of the intelligence community. A private detective from San Francisco named Lil Lipset was called before the Senator's subcommittee to demonstrate eavesdropping technology. One of the items on display was a martini glass with an olive on a cocktail stick. The olive was a transmitter. The pimento inside was a microphone, and the cocktail stick an antennae. <laughs> the senators were entranced. One of them asking, could it be done with a twist of lemon? <laughs> or a pickled onion? Nixon was drinking martinis when the Watergate story broke. But the martini was about to come under attack. Jimmy Carter, a peanut grower come president, hardly drank at all, and during his campaign against tax-deductible tax expenses, denounced the three-martini lunch. This, state, this statement instituted an influx of hundreds of letters to the press, and one to the New York Times read like this. The three-martini lunch produced an ambience of buoyant vigor and well-being, in which far-reaching plans and sound judgments were made about the future condition of man. And for the student of modern history, little more has to be said by way of explanation. Nevertheless, this era marked a decline in the fortunes of the martini and, in the same breath, good living. People had begun to drink bottled water. They bicycled in front of their televisions and even refused to eat meat. By the 1980s, it was back. There had been a change, a radical one. People had tired of gin, and thanks to a very aggressive and successful campaign by Smirnoff, vodka was now being poured into martini glasses. Now, you may have noticed that I have not so far mentioned the name of James Bond, and here's why. It was Ian Fleming who was responsible for using James Bond to popularize the vodka martini. It's a phrase I don't even like to use. If you... <laughs> If you, if you pour wine into a beer glass, does it become wine? No. If you pour vodka into, into a martini glass, it doesn't become a martini. It's a perfectly decent drink. It's just not a martini. It's an imposter. In the 90s, the Clean Living Brigade rallied and were back on top. Clinton drank them, but not in public. A political lobbyist of the era, while eating lunch and smoking at the same time, is recorded to have said... Once you could drink hard liquor in the middle of the school day without people assuming you were an alcoholic underachiever. <laughs> Strange how in the 50s, America, at the height of its industrial and imperial power, men drank double martinis at lunch. Now it's in its decline, they drink fizzy water. Something somewhere has gone terribly wrong. <laughs> martinis are back in fashion, although fashion nowadays brings ridiculous extremes and absurd variations, it can't be a bad thing if it brings us a martini. There are now bars that sell nothing but martinis, but with hundreds of variations. But, and they're all interesting, but I think it's just a hall of mirrors. They're all just reflections of one true, pure, original, historic dry martini. Rob Brandt there with the history of the martini. Have you got a favourite tipple, Dave? Uh, lovely, lovely show. Um, I, I do have a favourite tipple, actually, um, but I've not drunk it for many years because it... Um, Can't be it, that favourite, can it? It caused a problem. Pa a pandy, port and brandy. 
A pandy? Yeah, lovely drink, old-fashioned drink, port mixed with brandy. Uh, the trouble is I introduced it to a friend who decided to drink a full bottle of it for the millennium. Um and he was found having a knife fight at two in the morning, and then at three in the morning he was bouncing someone else's party, and then at four in the morning he was found on the seafront with one shoe on, wandering along <laughs> just saying blackness, blackness. <laughs> um, then two days later he woke up in a triple X's bed, the X before the X before the X, and said, oh, is, it, is it dawn? She said, no, it's the evening of the next day. It was... Uh, it was quite a thing. So that, that's a proper drink. Yes, that, it's, it's a bit like absinthe. It's not. It, you, you have to take it very carefully, a pandy. Now we're going to we're going to finish in a second. But one of the, as you know, oh, one of my favourite uh, passions is is biscuits. I was pretty much raised on biscuits in the north of England. <laughs> that's and what they do up there, isn't it? Well, yes, yeah, biscuits for breakfast. And we've got the custard cream here. I'm going to mm. pass one. There you Ooh, go. Lovely. Yes. We've got custard creams and. Uh, I've done a little bit of research into the custard cream, and there's not a great deal of information out there. They can be traced back to 1908. I don't know if you knew that. The Victorians. It was a Victorian biscuit. That's Edwardian. That's Edwardian. Sorry. It is, isn't it? Yeah. It can be traced back to the Edwardian time, Dave, um, to 1894. No, that's not true. That would (laughs) would be be Victorian. Victorian, I was trying to confuse you there. I thought you'd go, ha-ha, see what you're doing. (laughs) But you didn't. You just stared blankly at me. And uh, and so this design on the top is is a fern. It's and it's it's a baroque ah. design from the Victorian slash Edwardian baroque period so of the nineteen forties. A, a William Morris style biscuit. I think Morris designed them. No, no, you're right. He didn't. <laughs> anyway, um, it's worth a guess. Wasn't it? Where would you rank it as your favourite biscuit in the top ten? Uh, are we talking desert island biscuits here? Yeah. Um, I would say it'd be probably three or four in my biscuit parade. I wouldn't put it number one. But it's it's damn close. Well, I'm not going to ask for number one, because this is our first ever podcast. It exactly, crazy a lot of biscuits to, to go. We'd peak too early, mm. wouldn't we? Peak I reckon fiends. podcast twenty three. Mm. We should be um, we should be asking that question. I think I'd put it. If you put on, if you put out a plate of biscuits, the custard creams will always go. That's true. They um, will. Um, slice off the slice off the top bit of biscuit first, and then and the, was a, as a kid, I, I remember the joy uh, of the custard <clears> cream from those assorted boxes was peeling off actually peeling off the top the top bit of biscuit, yes. and then scraping your teeth over the the vanilla sugary bit Absolutely. in the middle. It was our Oreo, wasn't it? Before Oreos, the kind of the red, the, the grey squirrel of the Oreo came in and took overtook the <laughs> Oreos. Never made it to the north. I mean, I, I, I saw my first Oreo probably in my late twenties. When no, no, you know, well, when they, they didn't make it to England until then. Anyway, the, the, I, I discovered them in America through an American girlfriend, and I realised that they're, they're the ultimate take off the top and scrape mm. them. Scrape them. Can't say I massively like them to be honest. Oh, but they um, love you with milk. Getting big back mm. on, on on message, as it were. What it's such a strong drinker, Martini. Mm. You, 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 it's it's hard to think. Is it just olives? Is there anything else more imaginative you can serve as a food stuff that goes with a martini? In coriander. Coriander. I'm just throwing it out there. I'm not saying I have but lentils. Well, I mean <laughs> <laughs> something that people actually eat. You know, I mean, is there anything sweet to go? To? I mean, the, the the most uncompromising martini I've ever had is the Silver Bullet, which is uh, just vodka or gin chilled to exactly minus 18 degrees in a frozen glass which they serve at the american bar in paris and was hemingway's favorite drink and that's um hang on could you just stop you there did you yeah. say just vodka or gin yeah well wouldn't that just be gin then <laughs> well or, or vodka well no because it's all to do with the temperature ah. uh, and and the glasses i think are kind of washed in 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 vermouth and then frozen so literally there's just literally a lacquer of vermouth but it's 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 essentially just very cold vodka a silver mm. bullet so there you go when is a cocktail not a cocktail when it's a silver bullet but it is it's hard to think of anything other than olives and peanuts that go along with such an uncompromising drink 
But it, it does get you nicely jolly, doesn't it? It does. I'd like to. I'd like someone to invent a drink that had an excuse for a bit of rhubarb. I think the rhubarb is <laughs> as, as an underrated. No, seriously, as, as an underrated, underrated fruit. Well, you, can um, get, you can get rhubarb vodka, I believe. So can you, you? Yeah, you can get you can get rhubarb flavored thing. You can make your own. You could make rhubarb flavored gin instead of slow gin. You could chuck some rhubarb in it. Be the be at the forefront of rhubarb drinks, Dave. <laughs> I think rhubarb. There's a gap in the market. There really is. Come That's on. a dragon's dead moment, surely. Let's go. Right, you've been listening to podcast number one. We'll uh, we'll see you next time for uh, podcast number. What's the next one? B. B. Pod. <laughs> podcast B. See you next time. Bye, Z. <laughs> The Auditorium is presented by Dr. Bramwell and Mr. Mountfield and is produced by Andrew Mailing and Dr. Lance Dan, who's actually a real doctor. Find out more about us and upcoming live events at oddpodcast.com. To speak at one of our events, or just to say hello, email oddpodcastuk at gmail.com. Tales from the Auditorium regularly feature in Ernest Journal, a magazine for the curious and adventurous. To pick up a copy, head to earnestjournal.co.uk.